The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a little, um, always a little um, uh, overwhelming to speak to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations about U.S.-China Relations, <laughs> especially because there are lots of people who have lived this uh, even longer than I have and who've been in the room, and as a journalist, I often wasn't allowed into the room when the sausage was made, mm -hmm. as it were. But, but with that in mind, I wanted to just to throw out a couple of ideas um, that might help in a way to sort of put the current moment into some perspective um, about how America has interacted with China over time. And it, from, from doing work on the book, I, I, I sort of came to this idea that Americans, in many ways, in, 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 in how they comported themselves with China and how they interacted with China, um, that had a great deal to do with how Americans define themselves as a country, in, in some ways for better and, and in some ways for worse. And so going back to the beginning of the relationship, uh, we first began to trade with China. Uh, basically, the idea to trade with China was, was hatched uh, in 1783, basically the year that we beat the British. And the first ship left uh, the American shores in 1783, got to Guangzhou in 1784. And and it began a remarkable trading relationship uh, where, and the idea to trade with China then was this big Hail Mary pass, if you will, by American merchants uh, uh, in New England and in Philly and in New York, done to, tr to try to break out of this blockade that the British had inflicted on the United States. And as Americans traded uh, with, with China, a debate started in, in the US Congress about how should we organize our trade with the Chinese? And a lot of people in Congress were pushing for the Americans to copy the East, Indi the East India Company of the British, a large state-backed monopoly in terms of how it's going to do its trade with China. And others in, in the Senate and, and in the House basically argued, we cannot do this. And one former senator from New York, a long time ago senator, a fellow by the name of Rufus King, basically got up at a, at a certain point and made a very eloquent speech saying pri what he called private adventurers needed to be the ones to lead the trade. And we cannot rely on a state monopoly. And if only if you gave private adventurers the right to trade directly, would you actually have a healthy trading relationship with anybody. But this is particular with China. And those private adventurers turned out to be people by the name of Lowe, the Lowe's, the Greens, the Astors, uh, the Forbes from John Forbes Carey. Um, some of the foundational fortunes of the United States. And this fealty to this very entrepreneurial um, sort of uh, capitalistic idea was, was, was founded in the idea that trading with China was, this was the way to trade with China and this was the way to get rich. And ultimately these men, and they were all men at the time, uh, the Russells included, created the fortunes that lay the foundation for the United States Great, first great movement towards becoming an industrial powerhouse. And in fact, in some cases, the money that they made with their Chinese partners, along with Chinese money, was invested in the United States in terms of the first rail um, uh, enterprises and the first textile factories in, in the country. So this idea that, that how Americans comported themselves with China really helps to begin to define this American, very American idea of entrepreneurial capitalism. Uh, what, what, what happened in the interactions with the Chinese, that's something that struck me as being sort of a way to begin to look at the, the, the relationship. 
And so this idea continued um, up into the 1840s when the first American president, John Tyler, 1843, wrote to the, to the Qing court in which he emphasized the necessity and the importance of trade and this American idea that our, our entrepreneurs and your entrepreneurs will be able to make a lot of money together and actually we look at your nation and the stability and the, and the success of China is something that, that is actually in the direct national interest of the United States as well. So this idea that American entrepreneurs could make great money in China, but that this China needed to be a stable, united place was also became part of the strain of how American merchants began to look at China. But then also the idea of China began to appeal to other Americans, uh, not necessarily to their better nature, if you will. And so 1870, the Americans got together and they were debating the Naturalization Act of the United States, which was an act that was debated after the Civil War when clearly uh, African Americans, the African slaves, were going to become citizens. And in those debates, there was a huge topic was whether America should also allow Asians to be citizens of the United States. Because thousands of Chinese had flocked to the West Coast. And at the time, it, in the debates in the Senate, Charles Sumner, who was a famous anti-slavery uh, anti abolitionist, got up and he said, the Asians, the Chinese, should become citizens of the United States. And he was shouted down. And basically, the, the Naturalization Act of 1870 basically limited citizenship of the United States to a few Africans and, and whites. And that, because Chinese could not become citizens, they could not vote, then translated later on into a wholesale American attack on Chinese immigrants in the United States, which led to the, the uh, Anti-Chinese Exclusion Act of 1883, 1882, which was the first time the United States had ever banned any ethnic group from our shores. So again, you see America in its relationship with China defining itself in a way. First, you have America as a somewhat benevolent, self-interested, but benevolent country looking at the Chinese, and then you have America as a very angry country, um, a very self-interested, angry country looking at the Chinese. While America domestically was banning the Chinese, American missionaries began to try to form a different way of defining themselves and defining America in relation to China, but also in relation to the rest of the world. And so they also embraced a more benevolent view of bringing American law, well, Western law, Western science, Western medicine to the Chinese. And, and this obviously clearly self-interested, but also a more benevolent view. Um, the programs that Americans started in China, for example, the Boxer Indemnity Program, which, which educated a generation of Chinese scientists and, and, and writers and historians, was, was a foundation for the Fulbright Scholarship Program, which continues to today. And some of the ideas involved in other American charitable enterprises in China lay the foundation for Peace Corps and other activities like USAID. So again, in their relation with China, many Americans looked at China in a way as this kind of weird petri dish where they could try out these ideas, which they would then use elsewhere around the world in spreading this very self-interested but nonetheless benevolent American view of itself. Even smaller things like during the Second World War uh, in Chongqing, when the Americans basically allowed, kept, kept the KMT government alive by flying transport planes over the hump, those ideas there were the foundation for the, for, for the whole uh, operation to save Berlin during the Soviet blockade with the, with the airlift to Berlin. In fact, some of the same officers came from the Air Force and, and, and were working in Germany to help save, save West Berlin. So in, 
starting looking at, then you look at the, at, at the Nixon administration and their attempts to, to, to reach out to China, you see a return to this kind of benevolent view of America's role and America's sort of defining itself as a benevolent nation, self-interested clearly, but a benevolent uh, nation in regards into the relationship with the Chinese. <coughs> Where for many, for many years, if you look at classified cables, you see the Americans actually, you know, bending over in some ways, bending over backwards to help the Chinese versus our common enemy in the Soviet Union, pulling the Chinese into effectively a strategic alliance against the Soviet Union. And then once the Soviet Union collapsed, still, despite the problems of Tiananmen Square, still working with the Chinese to help to bring, to, the, to fruition this idea that a stable, strong, somewhat united China will, will, will help and be in, in, in the long term in the best interest of the United States. And then you have the rise of Donald Trump, which seems to kind of come out of nowhere. But in his railings against the Chinese labor, you hear the Workingmen's Party of California in the 1880s, which run by a, a, an Irishman by the name of Dennis Kearney, who ended every, he, he, gave a, he would give a tirade against the robber barons, which is, of course, Trump's tirade against the elites. And then he would end all of these tirades against the Leland Stanfords uh, of the day with, but the Chinese must go. And here we have Trump with his tirades against Washington's elites, which then blamed China for the collapse of American manufacturing. And this, these type of incongruous connections were made both in the 1880s and they're being, being made uh, uh, by Donald Trump today. Um, you have in Trump, in his angry, um, America first, this very much a, a repeat of these ideas um, uh, that were formed in looking at China. And interestingly enough, you, you look at his inauguration, his, inaug his inaugural address. Stephen Bannon, one of his uh, eminence greeds, the, sort of the brain behind Trump, has told, has told uh, TV, the TV reporter that look at the inaugural address and compare it to Xi Jinping's speech at Davos. So even the Trump, Trump team is clearly making this um, this, 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 you know, sort of pushing this idea that uh, Trump is defining America one way because China is defining China in a different way. So again, we have the United States trying to define itself as opposed to China. And it talk, talking to members of the Trump team, um, some of whom are, are, are still my friend, I don't know how long that's going to last, but um, they talk about trying to look at the relationship with China as the fundamental key way where the United States wants to begin to redefine itself on the global stage. So again, we're back to this thing of, of looking at China as the other or whatever as a way to try to, uh, to redefine what it means to be America. I don't know whether you think that's scary or not, but, but I think that's part of this process, that this, this very difficult and complex process that we've been working out with China from, from, from the 1700s on, uh, up until the day. Now, the Chinese, for their part, have a similar way of defining themselves vis-a-vis -vis, uh, us, the other. And you've seen it most recently, uh, over the, actually since 2013, with the rabidly anti-Western uh, na uh, nature of Chinese documents, both in the People's Daily, in the Global Times, but also from the Party Central, basically by saying, we are not American democracy. We are non-America. Uh, we are, uh, most recently, Zhou Chang, the, one of the, the, um, the head of the Supreme Court, the China's version of the Supreme Court, came out with a long screed of fighting um, 
any idea of, of, of judicial independence. And then just the other, just actually today, the People's Daily had a, has, a, has a front page attack on Western democracy. So the Chinese are, are defining themselves in a similar way. And this dance um, <coughs> is a dance by being, being, being done by two nations with nuclear weapons, uh, with an enormous amount of shared interest as well. And so um, if this was a movie, I'd want to keep on watching it. Um, but it's not. It's actually, it's actually real, real life. And so this, it, 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 it scares me at the same time. It, 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 it actually uh, entrances me. And so um, with that, I just want to sort of end my, my short comments, and I hope we can get into your questions. We have a discussion and, and take it from there. Well, because you, I'll ask some questions about the book in a moment, but you talked about some of our friends who are, are redefining the relationship with China. What does that mean? Specifically, in other words, it redefined relationship like tariffs, like how? Um, that's a great question, and I think that they themselves don't quite know. And from what it seems, you have a whole spectrum of people united with with the conviction that the Chinese have to quote one of them have played us for too long, and therefore this must stop. But exactly what they want to do as to how they're going to stop it or how they're going to change it, there seems to be a lot of debate. Forget the perception. When you say the Chinese have played us, do you think that's true? I think I, and not, not talking about the perception. I mean, I always joke there are two Chinas, one that with, exists within the Beltway and then the other one. Right. So I think to a certain extent there, I think on North Korea, the Chinese have. The Chinese have, uh, do not have uh, the same interest in North Korea as the United States. And the Chinese have, have in some cases, gave, given Washington the impression that they've done, that they have, and, have, and given Washington the impression that they will do more. And I think on that issue, I think there's, a, there's some justified frustration with the Chinese on that issue. Uh, the Chinese don't hide that they have different interests than we do on North Korea. Well, but... In other words, the, 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 you know, if you have a significant Korean population in Northeast China and Korea, North Korea collapses, you will have millions, more tens of millions of, of um, immigrants, which is pretty scary for Northeast China. I, Refugees. I, I, don't, I, I think that the refugee issue for them is of, of less importance than the existential issue that they look at North Korea as their East Germany. Um, so I understand that China has an existential issue there, but, but it's also played America in that um, uh, it has it is, it is been very important in stopping the United States from taking other measures. And the United States has actually put its faith in China. I mean, our Obama administration for eight years outsourced its North Korea policy to China on the belief that the Chinese would be able to move Kim Jong-un you know, in, into, into what, what everyone hoped would be the right direction. And that hasn't happened. And so there's a sense, and I don't know whether it's justified or not. Tightening sanctions, periodically cutting off food and oil. You want them to do more? Well, or you want the United States? What, what would you like the United States to do? Well, I personally would like the United States to negotiate with North Korea. I so think, do I. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think clearly it's, that's that's that, that's what should happen. And I, and I think actually, interestingly enough, if Obama had done it, it would have been would have been perceived as a, as an act of weakness. But if Trump does it, he's just nutty enough that he could turn it into an act, a movement of strength. Of course, he has said he wants to speak directly with Kim Jong Un. Yeah, and interesting, Mattis in his testimony hinted that it might happen. So, how else have they played the United States? 
Well, I think in terms, well, I mean, if you look at uh, currency uh, uh, manipulation, they did that for about six years with great alacrity. Um, and uh, in, in some cases, the, the, the sense among these advisors that the Americans didn't stand up for the United States on those issues. I mean, I don't know sort of the, uh, all, all the debates on that are still classified, so we don't really know. All we can see is the public record. But there was a significant amount of Chinese currency manipulation probably soon after WTO extension to about 2006, 2007. And that's not trading fair. Mm -hmm. That's history. It is history, but that now it's the it's the other way. No, China so, no, China's not spent eight hundred, almost a little less than a trillion dollars right. supporting its currency. Right, right. I, well, so, so what do we do now? In other words, how do, I'm trying to get to what's this redefinition? What 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 can be done? That's a good question. I but I think that the, I mean I you know I, I, in North Korea you, I could see a way forward where you just don't do not rely on them. And you take it, you know, because it is ultimately your, your responsibility. But on trade, I think you're absolutely right. It's a very difficult situation. But you have a lot of resentment building up. And it's unclear exactly whether a decent policy can come from that. What are the lessons from the book kind of for today? I mean, you, you, you go through, in that 742 pages, you go through from 1783 till now. Um, what, what are the lessons we should draw that are applicable today? Um, great question. Luckily, I'm not in policy-making circles, but but I, I I think it's the the understanding that the the pattern of the relationship has been this very uh, over-emotionalized relationship where we have enormous expectations for the Chinese and they have enormous expectations for us. Those expectations are invariably dashed. And then we start back again, and we have the sort of different expectations that continue to, to sort of heighten up again. And I also think that, in part, uh, Americans could do well by looking at how the Chinese have dealt with the United States, which has been a little bit more transactional and more short-term. And Americans have a tendency, have had a tendency with the Chinese, to help China and give China things with the belief that there's going to be a future better relationship. And I think that that has not served the United States well at, at point, points in its, in, its, in its engagement with China. The book talks a lot about the kind of the, un, you know, again, the, the, the exaggerated hopes and that they're dashed. Do you think the narrative is wrong and in a lot of ways that China did kind of that American business did reach its greatest expectations in China, and that it's the perception here that's wrong. That we're seeing a turndown, but in a lot of ways, Apple, Boeing, General Motors, no one dreamed that Apple would have $15 billion of sales in a quarter? Mm -hmm. That General Motors would generate more profit in from China. China than it does in the United States? that China would be the largest market for Boeing? Is there an argument to be made that the dreams were actually realized? That they were under, that they outperformed their expectations? Oh, on, on the business front, for sure. Yeah, I mean, in, in the MBA, for example, as well. So there's, there's, there's no shortage of examples of places where, where these dreams, and also in terms of how the two countries engaged when it came to the USSR. That was, a, that was another example of, of them breaking the mold. So why do you think people are so desperate for this, this redefinition? 
I don't know if everyone is desperate. I think the Trump administration is desperate. But, but actually, the interesting thing is that my sense is, uh, knowing a lot of the people who worked with Secretary Clinton, is that her administration, it would have been different, clearly. But there is a, still a same, similar sense among policymakers on the Democratic side of the aisle that they were fed up with China as well. And why? That's a, that's a great question. It's a question I just I, I can't answer. I just don't know the answer to it. Um, because, you know, from, from your perspective, you think that China's actually gotten a sort of a bad rap. I think there are, there are elements where it gets a soft rap and there are elements where it gets a hard rap. Mm -hmm. You know, where it's where I think there are certain things where we give China a pass and there are many where it's, it's um, um, we're not nearly tough enough. I mean, I think, you know, I have suggested to the New York Times that they and the Wall Street Journal should have on the masthead the number of days that it has been blocked in China. Mm -hmm and that the U.S. government, any U.S. government official, when it goes, should, when he or she goes, should first say, it is very difficult for Americans to trust a government that doesn't allow access to responsible journalism. And you're not, it's difficult to argue the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, although maybe, maybe in this new administration, who knows, but that it's, it's, um, it's, it's irresponsible journalism. But, uh, you know, I think we are, we are too soft on that. We're too soft on, um, on allowing arbitrary uh, decisions with respect to visas for Americans. I think that should always be way up on top for, for U.S. officials, because that's something which the good guys in China, the guys who support constructive relations, can solve. Yeah. So I, 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 let me try to answer why, in some cases, why there uh, seems to be a lot of disenchantment with China. And it's um, a few years ago, you know the story about the Twitter feed uh, in Beijing with um, the pollution uh, monitor uh, exercise that was put on the, the roof of the U.S. Embassy. And um, it had an enormous effect in China. Um, but the question is, why, didn't, why wasn't it done in New Delhi? Now, there is a, a, a one in New Delhi. But um, it's just to my point that Americans have had a tendency over time to hold Chinese, and not just the country, but also the people, to a much higher standard than we hold other people. Uh, and because partially due to the history of the relationship and the history between the two peoples, there is just a lot of expectations, again, back into sort of my idea that, that sort of underlies the book, that we have enormous expectations for the Chinese. They are, have almost always been our best friend and almost always have been our worst enemy. If you look at how Americans viewed the Chinese in the 1950s, for example, um, after they, they battled the U.S. armies, uh, and, well, the U.N. forces, to, to, a, to a standstill, across the United States there was this massive fear uh, 22 Americans basically went over to the Chinese side, and tens of thousands, of course, of Chinese POWs decided not to go back to China. But the 22 Americans that went over to the Chinese side, that stayed in China, the Americans were obsessed by them. Numerous books were written about them, and there was this whole idea that the Chinese had discovered brainwashing, and they were going to use the brainwashing of Americans to infect U.S. society. Of course, the Manchurian candidate is a perfect example of that. But this, this is an idea that, and then, of course, Lin Biao in China said, yes, we have, and this is our atomic bomb of thought, that we're going to release the Mao Zedong thought on all, on, on, on all unwitting Americans. But this idea that the Chinese 
um, through their sort of communism meets Fu Manchu thing, were going to take over the minds of Americans. I mean, this was you know something Americans were. I mean, brainwashing coined by a CIA operative, Sinal in Chinese, um, was was an important part of how Americans basically worried about the communist menace. And China, this this was a time when China was you know a very very poor a very poor country. And so this, this sense of China as being, you know, of greater, greater power, I think, has always been part of our, the way we looked at it. I mean, you know, back to the 19th centuries and the Chinese working men in, in California, how much they threatened uh, the union membership, the card-carrying union guys, both Welsh and Irish, on, on the coast of California. So much so that they got legislation to, to kick these guys out of the country and ethnically cleanse them out of 200 towns in California. So I think this idea of the Chinese menace is something that is, uh, and then if you look now on sort of on the positive side, you have your Tiger Mom books by Amy Chua of the Chinese and the Chinese American being the ultra competitive, the family everyone wants to study, again into this idea of these expectations we had of, of Chinese and Chinese Americans. And I think that has a, plays a role in our expectations and why they're dashed so uh, tragically and, and, and uh, emphatically. Let's go back to the book for a minute. The, the, you're a journalist. This is a real history. What, why did you make this transition to writing a history of U.S.-China relations as a journalist? Um, it's a great story. It's the best story I've ever found. And, and it's a narrative, so it is a story. Uh, and I wanted to write it, to write, write it in the way that would make it accessible to people who are interested in the tale of us and them. And um, I got into it partially because um, when I, cover, I covered U.S.-China relations, and I, I was always seeing shadows or echoes of the relationship as I did my work. Um, people literally, in some cases, were the sons or daughters of missionaries whom I engaged with. A lot of Chinese in China whom I knew very well had studied in America or their parents had studied in America before, before uh, the revolution. And so this sense of discovering both in living in China and living in the States, this sort of other part of the relationship. And yes, I mean, I'd read The Good Earth and, and I'd studied the U.S.-China relations in college, but, but the I, I saw it in, in living and breathing people and saw their ideas about America were, were, were not formed starting in 1972, but they, they were formed as a part, of, part and parcel of the engagement we've had over the, the hundreds of years. I just thought that a book like this might, might serve a purpose. How many years of research? Six. Wow. Anything surprise you in the six years of research? Uh, how many rabbit holes I got stuck down, basically. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's some characters, uh, Sophia Chen, I don't know if anybody knows who she is, was uh, Chen, Chen, Chen Hengzhe. I spent, you know, months on her, and she's, not, she's only a couple mentions in the book, and somebody should write a biography of her. Um, but uh, one, actually, one of the things that I had no idea about was how important China was to American women as the first place that American women could go to be real co career women. And that was, for me, really extraordinary, and how feminine, if you will, the U.S. missionary enterprise in China was. And it was a place where single, uh, uh, ambitious single American women could go, where they could actually be all they could be. Because in America, they, after the Civil War, they, could, they started getting education, but they basically could be teachers. That was it. 
um, or you know, work in poor houses. Uh, but in China, they could be missionaries and they could do anything. They could be doctors. They were surgeons when they were basically banned from American operating rooms in, in America. They were surgeons in China. Um, and so that sense of China as a place where American women could, uh, you know, sort of have real full lives as career women was, was to me, that was very surprising. Um, what got left on the uh, cutting floor? What, besides, what got cut that you would have, if you had another year, if you had another hundred pages, you would have included? Um, not, almost not a day doesn't go by when somebody, um, Kathy came up to me and told me a great story. I mean, yeah, there you are. Sorry. I mean, these stories like this, um, these, these detailed little narratives, which are just perfect, uh, I, I discover everyone every, every day, and I'm like, oh, God, it's too late. So. Would you recommend that President Trump read it? Does he? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, <laughs> I see hands already starting to go up. So let me start to... Um, we got right here in front of me. Um, Do we have microphones today or no? Yeah. I'm Andrew Farah. I was an Oriental Studies major at University of Pennsylvania in the early 70s. So that launched my interest in China. But in, the, in those days, we, we learned about one of the disparaging remarks in China in the early 70s and 80s was individualism. You called somebody. Later, in, in your book, Chinese Lessons, you talk about the first gutihu, the initial entrepreneurs in China, who are individuals. And whereas individualism in the United States is a, a great uh, virtue, in China it wasn't. It, it, are there any vestiges of the old disparaging ideas of individualism? or? Is, is it now considered a, a very positive thing? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, this doesn't really involve the book, but it's just a, a, a maybe it's, it's, it's a, a, a wrong observation that I've had, but I've always found Chinese actually to be some of the most individualistic people I've ever met in my life. In fact, uh, as, because their educational system is structured and so competitive, they're actually pretty lousy team players. <laughs> and um, in business schools, uh, American business schools where Chinese attend, most Chinese whom I know don't want to be on a, one of these study groups with other Chinese because they don't work well together. Um, and in China, I mean, there's a lot of parenting magazines which basically teach Chinese parents to try to create an environment similar to that of American kids where they have to share, which is a challenge if you have a single child. Um, and it's a challenge when you don't have enough time to plan a sports teams. But Americans use the sports teams, especially the sports, as, as a way of like, you know, learn to share, be a good teammate. And those are, those are qualities that have not been uh, emphasized in the Chinese, which has created very powerful, strong individuals, people with a great difficulty in actually playing as a team. Um, but the interesting thing is that actually, even in the early 1900s, you see Chinese writing in the Chinese Student Monthly, which was a publication published in the United States, about how they really needed to study the teamwork of Americans. So back even 100 plus years ago, Chinese were writing, that was an observation they had about Americans as well. So I don't think yeah, it's, a, it's a communist issue. Excuse me. Rufus King is uh, uh, saying that the American... Uh, Private adventurers. Yeah, yeah, be the way to go. Right. And you look now in Chinese society, who are the most respected people? And I mean, Jack Ma is a rock star, right? along with many others. Thank you. Ken Wasserman, I'm an attorney. A, a two-part question. 
You said that uh, China views, or may view, North Korea as China's East Germany. I wonder if you could go into that a little deeper. And then secondly, concerning the 22 Americans who went over to China mm -hmm. after the Korean War, is there any um, indication of what some of those people lived like a decade or a few decades later? Did yeah. they assimilate? Did they not? Yeah. Um, so about the, the, the East Germany uh, simile, if you will, um, if it collapses, then the peninsula is united, probably assuming it's going to be united under South Korea, under a pro-American, probably a pro-American regime. What do the American troops do? Oh, do? Who goes into North Korea to, to secure the nuclear sites? Do we go in? Do the Chinese go in? What do you do with the peninsula that is suddenly out of your control? Right? They can basically they semi-control half of it. At least they have a buffer. But you've lost that buffer. Do the Americans leave? Do they stay? Um, and then you have lots of Korean Chinese, um, which, which which Steve alluded to, and. Koreans, once the motherland's united, might start feeling a pull from the motherland, uh, the Korean motherland, not the Chinese motherland. And so not only do you have a potential refugee problem of immense proportions, but you also have a stability, a potential stability issue where it's a significant chunk of, of Dongbei, of, 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 of the Northeast, might basically want to tilt to embrace the traditional boundaries of the Korean kingdom. So. It's not simply a short-term issue. It's, it's also a long-term issue in that United Korea, and they assume the worst because they plan for the worst, under a pro-American regime creates a series of huge headaches for them. It, it changes their whole strategic calculus in, in, in Northeast Asia. Uh, and so um, I don't think it's simply a refugee issue. It's never been for them, which which explains why, if you look at the UN sanctions regime, they're, they're, they're basically filled with intentional holes. There's a livelihood prov provision which is massive, and they don't even report oil shipments to North Korea at all. Whereas with, with the Iranians, it was much tighter. Um, because, it, because the Chinese are just not, they don't like the idea of, of threatening the stability of, of, of their. And then on top of that, there is an important factor that the PLA fought, in, well, it was the Chinese People's Volunteers, but it was the People's Liberation Army. They fought and bled for Korea. And, and there is an ideological brotherhood uh, amongst some uh, circles in the PLA with, with their friends over the border in Pyongyang. And to negate that, it, it would be for them uh, a very, very difficult uh, pill to swallow. On the 22, so there was one guy, um, Clarence Adams, I believe, who was an African-American, um, who, who went, to the, went to the other side because he was sick of being you know, ta the racist taunts by his fellow GIs. And he came back to the United States. Um, several of them died in China. I actually interviewed one of them who moved to China. I interviewed one of them in 1988. And he'd moved to Shandong province, and he'd married several Chinese women. He had gone through hell during the Cultural Revolution. Um, and he spoke, he spoke uh, an American English straight out of the 1950s. He'd been back to America once, and then he, did, then he came back to China. Ultimately, he left China, I think, after 89 and just retired to the States. And um, by the, the normalization period, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, basically their, their sins had been forgiven and they weren't going to be prosecuted. Um, 
Several other of them died in China, and actually a few of them retired to America, and they lived out their lives here. Can we go back to North Korea for a second? Um, do you think, from your reporting for years on U.S.-China relations, the United States and China have discussed what happens in the event of an implosion in Korea? So, um, I've been told, and I could be wrong because, again, I have not seen the sausage made, but I've been told there have been numerous attempts to discuss this on a track two basis because the Chinese won't discuss it on a um, direct bilateral basis, and that they've been, they've, the Americans have been turned down, no less than, than Bill Perry on the beginning of January, January 2016, went to China with, with Sig Hecker to talk to the Chinese about this. And Beijing International, uh, Beijing University's International Relations Department hosted him, and they couldn't get meetings. Now I could be absolutely wrong, and there yeah. could be continued CIA discussions, and then I, then I'm, then I'm incorrect as usual. But, um, but on on that front, I've asked as many people, and those are the people I trust. And this was actually not just from Perry's side, but it's also from from the Beijing Beijing University side that they were really concerned that there's no discussion. Like, if this happens, what are you going to do? What are you right. going to do? No, ta no, no ta tabletop things, and that's important. That's a basis because again, and, and it was explained to me, and again, I could be wrong because it actually could be going on. But but what it was explained to me was that there's so little strategic trust between the two sides that uh, the Chinese made the calculation that they don't, they, they don't want to even think in that direction. Hmm. Back. Um, I'm Rick Belsky. I uh, teach uh, Chinese and East Asian history at Hunter College. Mm -hmm. Love the book. Thank I you. hate to um, uh, not uh, talk about the history of it. There's something so riveting about the present moment that somehow, as much as we keep trying to pull ourselves away from what's happening right now, right. we keep there was a, a headline in the South China Morning Post today, I saw where a Chinese diplomat said that if other powers are gonna relinquish their role as world leader, China is ready to step into that position. Which, um, you know, obviously it's a bit, um, uh, you know, gamesmanship, but there's something I think right. really about this moment where China is reevaluating not just its relationship to the United States, but really its position in, in the world yeah. at, after all these years. This is, this is what it's been coming to. I agree with you that in its relationship with the United States, China is often more transactional than, than, than people really realize. But as you step into the larger rule, if you're really going to get serious about world leadership, you, you get kind of called uh, onto the carpet for hypocrisy. So there's a very good work on the US civil rights that emphasizes that we tend to look at it as uh, completely as the kind of internal dynamics of working out uh, justice within America. But it was actually a lot of the United States taking that international role and then the hypocrisy of, of race relations really pushed forward, uh, coming to grips with where we had to improve. Is, is there something to that? Might China transform itself more seriously if they're serious about taking a, a, a world position? Xi Jinping was at, at Davos, he gave this beautiful speech, but when you look at right. how they're going to be open, open markets, you know, civil society, and then you yeah. look at where China is now, it, right. it, it, it's sort of thundering and, and the hypocrisy. But what, what is 
My, my take would be that it might happen. I mean, China has traditionally used uh, its membership in global organizations as a lever, a lever to change its own country. So you look, they did significantly change their economy in the run-up and after WTO. Um, Post Tiananmen Square, where they were, you know, their name was mud across the, across the, at least the Western uh, community. Um, after several years of stasis, they then embraced a, ra you know, relatively radical and very successful um, uh, real estate reform program, which, which actually turned their urban, uh, you know, population into homeowners. Um, and so uh, they have looked at their foreign relations and participation in international organizations as a way to change their country. Another example would be the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, um, issue, uh, also uh, issues involving nuclear uh, nonproliferation. So um, if China becomes a global leader, I think China naturally will, over the course of time, be transformed by its responsibilities. The question is whether it has the interest and the wherewithal to become that international. They've said it, but, but they've also looked at um, calls for China to step up to be sort of a soft version of containment, um, just a way to actually, by adding responsibilities to China, take, you know, force China to take its eye off the ball uh, on economic modernization and, and growing its military. So I, that's a, it's, it's going to be interesting to see, because you see China pivoting already. You know, Trump's done his weird pivot, and China now is responding in many ways. Um, and that's, again, defining themselves by in, in their relationship to us. Go ahead. Come here. Uh, my name is Kang Biao. I'm a visiting, <coughs> visiting scholar at uh, U.S. Institute Law Institute here. Um, uh, my question is, um, not long after uh, 1989, the massacre, uh, United States uh, gave um, MF and uh, most favorable nations leaders to China yep. and uh, um, to delink uh, human rights uh, with uh, trade. Yep. And, and, and then um, um, it, it, it is based on a theory that the, uh, the market economy, the globalization will uh, produce a, a middle class and, and to then uh, <coughs> the middle class, they, uh, uh, the, uh, the globalization will uh, demand democracy and freedom in China. Um, but in my, uh, in my opinion, um, it has been uh, proven wrong. Uh, and China has become the second largest economy and, and also one of the worst countries uh, with uh, uh, human rights record. So what's your comment on this? So I, I think that um, the the W the MFN sort of debates, uh, and that led up to finally to permanent MFN, and then ultimately to China's extension in the WTO were were framed or sold to many Americans as this idea that, as you said, as China uh, modernized, it was going to change fundamentally. Um, Secretary of Treasury Rubin told the American people that it was just creating a, a whole nation of entrepreneurs. Uh, Condoleezza Rice and, uh, and, and the George uh, W. Bush administration told Americans that this was, again, going to sow the seeds for democracy and political change in China. Um, it hasn't turned out that way at all. Um, uh, but China, of course, is not in stasis. It's still a work in progress as well, right? So China you know, will ultimately, like all countries, it will change too. Um, the question is, you know, 
what timeline is it on? And, you know, how, and so for the time being, clearly that bet has not played out, which I think plays into a lot of the feelings in Washington that people feel that China has not sort of become the country that we thought it was going to become. But Americans have this view of China that they have since missionaries started going there that they're going to change China into America's image. Um, and, it, and, it, and so far it hasn't worked out. So I basically I agree with your analysis, um, but it's you know it's pretty early still in, in China's development, um, and there's you know they, they it's it's just just because China has not become the country we all expected it to come yesterday doesn't mean it's not going to change in a positive direction tomorrow. I'm generally optimistic yeah, actually about China um, in the long term, but the long term is a long term. Right? <laughs> Back here. Hi, I'm Jamie Fleischman, recently returned from Beijing after four years there and worked with uh, Chinese high school students applying to American University here. You alluded to the long history of Chinese coming to America to study here, and I'm wondering, as a journalist, what stories are you looking to see as Chinese students have reached their peak 300,000 students now studying in America? Wondering what stories are you following? So it's interesting. Um, I mean, this might... I, there are so many Chinese students in the United States right now that a lot of Chinese students come to America and stay, basically they don't leave China. And, um, and, and it's similar in some ways. There are not that many American students in China, but a lot of American students go to China and they stay in the United States. They hang out with their buds, they play hoops, video games, whatever, and, and they don't really engage with China. Um, and that's, there, there's even less excuse for that then because 300,000 is a lot and, and they, you know, in major universities like University of Minnesota at a certain point, 10% of the, um, uh, the undergraduate class were from China. And, and in some departments, like in physics, a significant percentage are Chinese. So you basically can come to America and stay in China. And that I don't think is healthy. And, but how do you break that cycle? I think that's difficult. But I think that's an important part of the two countries' engagement. Um, uh, and so that's, that's an important, just, Personally, an issue that I've seen. You have your, you know, Weixinxun, you know, and you just all your buds, and and you don't deal with with with. And and Americans in in, in Chinese defense of the Chinese, Americans often are not incredibly like outreaching and want to bring Chinese into the sort of the community. And so that's a difficult issue. But I think that's on a very street level something that I I, I worry about um, uh, because of the. And, and a lot of people, um, it's funny, I mean, the attitude towards the United States that Chinese people have now from China is a lot different than it was in the 1980s, and for justifiable reasons. When they came to the United States in the 1980s, they were like, my God, there are lights everywhere. I fly over the country and the whole country's lit up, you know, whereas China's dark. Um, you know, actually, a poet came and wrote a poem about flying over America and seeing all these cities, you know, at night, um, uh, and which you don't get now for obvious reasons. But... Um, I, I think that, that the, the, the lack of social interactions bugs me a bit. Uh, Maria Casa, former National Committee staff member and presently working at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, as a journalist, um, I wonder how you would characterize reporting by the media, the U.S. media, on China since Tiananmen. So I, I think, I mean, it, it's generally pretty good. Um, 
if you look at all of the newspapers, uh, so TV doesn't cover China at all, basically. I mean, CNN did a little bit, but really not that much. And Tiananmen Square was a period of time where I think NBC, ABC, they did about 500 stories about China in that one year, and then after it, they stopped. Um, so TV does not cover China, really. When it does, it's always, almost always sort of China bashing or pandas, right? <laughs> um, but then, so you look at, at the news media, the, the, the print media, and, um, and I, I would kind of consider The Economist to be somewhat of an American publication, simply because so much of its circulation is in the United States that it does... Um, I think the coverage, broadly speaking, has been okay. Um, uh, and given, also given um, the unrelentingly bad treatment that reporters have gotten in China after about 2003 or 2004. Um, it's just a, not a fun place to work. So I, I lived in China as a reporter from 96 to 2003, and that was sort of the copper age of journalism in China. Um, we got background briefings from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on a regular basis. We could talk to military officers as long as they were approved. You could travel. There were a lot of rules about where you could travel, but everyone broke the rules all the time, so that was kind of okay. Um, uh, and it was a much more open society than it has become now. Um, now you don't get background briefings. They don't take you out. If somebody's going to see you, it's almost always with somebody else. I mean, we would go out with... I mean, I don't, people in this room probably know who Xiaozu Kang was. I mean, he was a, dep he was a deputy director of the UN. You could see him, uh, I mean, he would get mad at you and be, like, he would be so mad at you, he'd be spitting at you. But you could see him one-on-one. -on -one. And he was an arms control guy, which was, for an American, a very good person to talk to. With. And now you can't see anybody like that at all. It just doesn't happen. Um, why? Why, why? Why have the Chinese, why has the system changed like that? Um, there's a really off-color description of why it does, but I, maybe to try to be polite, I think <laughs> because they can, it doesn't matter to them. And there's also a level of fear. I mean, no Chinese leader has given a foreigner a direct interview since Jiang Zemin, right? Hu Jintao, nothing. And then uh, Xi Jinping does this kind of wacky, you ask questions, I answer, I send it to you, and then I change. I mean, it's just kind of nutty. Uh, and I think it's also because they, they, they do not want a situation to move out of their control. When Clinton, Bill Clinton held a, a live press conference with John Zemin in 1998, and the Americans were like, look to the Chinese, look, see how great that was? And the Chinese were like, we're never going to do that again. Because <laughs> uh, their interpretation of the event was completely different than the American interpretation. Um, so given that kind of, and there's also just a lot of high pressure, and there's an enormous amount of pressure on the staff of foreign correspondents who are Chinese locals. And one, a uh, couple of people have been arrested. One guy's been given a jail sentence. And so that type of, and lots of them are taken out to tea on a regular basis by the Ministry of State Security. So given that really negative environment for doing one's business, I think the coverage has been extremely fair. Um, Yes, there's an overarching obsession Americans have with human rights, but that's part and parcel of our of, of how we've kind of looked at China from the missionary days. Of how you treat your Christians, how you treat your dissidents, it's the same thing. Is in direct the direct interest of the United States. David Chambaugh wrote a very interesting book, not his most recent book, but one before that, which was about the Chinese analysis of the color revolutions. Right. 
and the analysis of the color, the, the Chinese analysis of the color, color revolution, whatever your real analysis is, the Chinese analysis was that NGOs and a free press led to the overthrow of right. the Communist parties in each of those states. And that analysis took a long time to do and then slowly percolated up through the Chinese Communist Party. And when it did, they then began to adapt these policies of being tougher on journalists, being tougher on NGOs, which has now led to the, the new NGO management law. But it took years. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is, you know, because I'm always, I always wrestle with the why. Well, there's also... Because, it, it, you know, the, one would assume that if you treat people better, you might get a little bit better coverage. Yeah. If you didn't get invited to tea regularly, you probably would get better coverage. Yeah. It just, and you sit there and you go, there has to be in this, there must be a scale, and obviously that's not very important, yeah. and the keeping control is so important. But there's also a, a big change from the primitive times when I worked there to now is that the interconnectivity of the world. So David Barboza, the New York Times, writes a story about the wealth of the family of Wen Jiabao. That directly affected the transition. Um, and a colleague, Michael Forsyth, when he was working for Bloomberg, does a story about the wealth of the family of Xi Jinping. That is a huge story. Um, and the financial, the forensic financial journalism that can be done about these families in China can directly affect, in the Chinese view, the stability of the regime. And that stuff, six, let's say you did it 15 years ago, might have filtered back. But if you did it last week, it's all over China. And so that... So know, the blowback into China. It used to be foreign reporting people, whatever. Right. Nobody's going to... Or 500 people right. are going to see it, doesn't matter. Yeah. But now that 5 no, million see it, yeah. it's really important. So yeah. the stakes for, that, for their perspective are higher. And, and because they're more integrated in the world, um, even through cutouts, like that great New York Times story on Anbang, which had all these peasants as being huge stockholders in this, you know, giant corporation, that, that type of, in, you know, because of their interconnectivity with the rest of the world, it creates an issue of potential stability or uh, maintenance from, for the regime. So, hmm. this, is, this is not a, uh, I, uh, Dan back to the current climate and what the current administration is looking at. In fact, unless I missed something on the Twitter feed of the world, in fact, the administration has not even really mentioned human rights. That's not their focus. No. In fact, that's devoid of anything to do with anybody's rights other than the rights of you know, workers to get their jobs back and things like that. It's just a point because the, the tie together what you were mentioning, what you were mentioning was that the, that there that's the part that's missing when you're talking about that. It's just sort of what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean in Trump's that to US, what the US wants. Yeah, in the inaugural speech, Trump didn't speak about China directly, but he basically said, I don't care what type of system you have, right? right? I'm gonna put my people first and that's how we're gonna become you know, great again, and to show everybody how great we are because we're going to put our people from. We don't care about your political system. He's clearly saying human rights are not an issue. Yeah. He's talking about the rights of our workers. Yeah. Other than that, 
Yeah. Lock everybody up, and you can treat our reporters like trash. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine him going to bat for the New York Times in China. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe the Washington Post. Tom, <laughs> last question, I think. Uh, Tom Keller, who's been decided on this. I have a large voice, so I'll just start talking. Oh, here it is. Uh, so my question is sort of the flip side. We've been talking a fair amount about where Trump wants to take the U.S.-China relationship, including in a lot of uh, uh, very troubling directions, let's, let's face it. Uh, my question is, where do you think she wants to take uh, the U.S.-China uh, relationship because he, uh, maybe not to the same degree as Trump, but he certainly is a very different figure uh, than the Hu Wen team and even uh, Jiang Zemin before that. How do you think he is looking at the relationship right now? I think given the fact that this year is for him a selection year where he's going to re-up um, for another six years uh, and maybe more, you never know. Um, <laughs> it's a bad thing to have U.S.-China relations collapse. Um, he does well as long as the relationship is okay, um, but nobody, because, because the U.S. relationship still, for better or worse, is China's most important relationship. And having it go off the rails is not, would not serve him. So I think his interest is in trying to be the adult towards the petulant child in the room. And if he can pivot like that, it will help him. But if um, it doesn't work, um, then uh, he, People can criticize him, and, and given the fact that he's in this selection year, he needs to, I think, from my perspective, get his ducks in a row and do what he can. And, and I think that he has some wiggle room as long as doesn't, it doesn't kind of bleed into sovereignty issues, because that, that's where he has real potential for problems. Um, so if they can keep sovereignty issues off the table, they can kind of minimize this kerfuffle around Taiwan hopefully, you know, not get into a hot war in the South China Sea, and there could be some movement on trade, and perhaps even with North Korea, then, you know, uh, Trump might be in, in, in the mood to declare victory. Unless Trump's people are really focused on making the China relationship, you know, the enemy that's going to, you know, uh, help, help America's new Sputnik moment. Because, um, you know, Trump likes the 1950s, right? And, and um, that happened in the 1950s, too. Well, let's all hope that's not the case. <laughs> but this has given you a flavor of what is in this wonderful history. The beautiful country in the Middle Kingdom, it is available outside, and the author will stay a few minutes to sign it. But thank you so much for giving of your time, and thank you all for coming.